And now for something completely different. Ah! Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And welcome to the show this morning. It's, of course, Halloween. So, happy Halloween also means the last day of October. Getting ready for the month of November. Uh, of course, uh, lots of stuff happening this week. We've got the Fed meeting on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then, of course, uh, next week is is uh, Tuesday, right, which is the... Which is voting for mid midterm elections. I went completely blank there for a second. Midterm elections next week. <laughs> next week is Tuesday. I know. Next week we have a Tuesday as well. <laughs> Happens every week. Uh, you know. Speaking of that, you know, ha you, know you know, I'm starting to forget things when I'm getting older. You know, you want to know how old you're really getting. So this past <laughs> weekend, my wife and I flew up to uh, Lubbock to go see our daughter at Texas Tech. It was family weekend, right? And so. They they have you know big event going on. They have you know everything you know they have you know tailgating and everything set out. So we go up, we fly up to Lubbock and we're walking around the campus uh, before the game, and that's where they have all the tailgating going on. So they they have this whole pavilion set up with live music, and they're playing. You know they've got live rappers you know out there doing rap music, which is awesome. And it's and it's great because it's like from the '90s. It's like Tone Loke. <laughs> oh, that kind. Yeah, Funky yeah. Cole Medina. So yeah, baby. What was funny is is <laughs> is all the old people are out there, you know, jamming, <laughs> bouncing around. All the kids look around like, who the hell is this guy? Right. So that's how you know you've really gotten old when you're the only people dancing out there. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. <laughs> Um, so that's why I'm forgetting things today, obviously. The next I'm, sign is when you hear Tone Loke in the elevator. <laughs> yeah, Tone Loke. And Young MC came out, and everybody's like, who's this guy? <laughs> so, anyway, it was a lot of fun. You know, they're, they're like going, who remembers the 90s? And all the old people are like, yeah! I'm like, who remembers the 50s? <laughs> Crickets. So, <laughs> anyway, um, so uh, last week, of course, uh, markets uh, kind of struggled on Friday, Thursday and Friday a little bit uh, because of you know, earnings announcements by Apple, Amazon, etc. And of course, last week, very tumultuous overall. Uh, markets came down and retested that very important 3800 level that we talked about. We actually sat right on top of it on uh, Wednesday and Thursday and, and came down and retested that. Now on Friday, the good news was uh, after, Am uh, after Apple's earnings on Thursday, market got a nice bounce, started creating a bit of short covering in the market on Friday. And the market actually not only surged above the 50-day moving average, but also touched the 100-day moving average as well. So very nice retest. I mean, technically perfect. You had a rally above this resistance level at 3,800, tested the 50-day, failed, tested support at 3,800, then rocketed back up through that 50-day moving average. So technically, a textbook retest of support. And, and again, kind of confirms that this rally that we started about four weeks ago now remains intact at this point. And this also sets us up now. There's not a whole lot of, of, of resistance here between here and about 4,000 on the index, as we've been talking about. It's kind of our target for this rally over the next month. Uh, we get this rally to about 4,000. Make sure you sell into it. Raise a bit of cash. Once we get into early next year, there's going to be 
uh, issues, of course, with more rate hikes, slower earnings growth, those type of things. So we still have a lot of things to work through. So again, just kind of use these rallies, reduce risk. When markets get oversold, you can add a little bit of risk. This is just going to be a trading cycle here for a while until we kind of get through this. But importantly, despite the fact that this year has just felt terrible, right? It's just like oh, it's a terrible year. Markets in this terrible bear market. It's really not. I mean, if you really kind of take a look at the market, yeah, we had this bit of a breakdown right here, but markets have really gone nowhere here over the last four or five months. It's just been this, this sideways grind that just is kind of wearing on investors at this point. So again, despite all the negative activity in the headlines, markets really just have just been trading sideways here for, for quite a bit. But again, this rally back up here to around 4,4100, that's the most logical place to, to raise some cash. Now, if we happen to break above that, again, now we can, and, and then do, you know, have some technical retests and things of the 200-day moving average that we get above that, then of course we can start talking about what's changed. And again, that could be a lot of things, right? Economic improvement, or it could be the Fed starting to back off rate hikes, whatever it is that gets us there, gets us there. But right now, until we start to see some of those changes, we have to assume, at least at this point, that we're still kind of in this negative downward trend, at least through the end of this year. But again, you know, we'll just have to take that as it comes. Right now, again, technically very nice break above the 50-day uh, uh, moving average that sets this market up. The Dow, believe it or not, despite everything that's gone on this year, the Dow is set to have the best one-month return since like 1938. So it has been a spectacular month for the Dow. The, NAS the Dow's up over 14% for the month. The Nasdaq's up about 5% for the month. Again, hard to believe despite all this, you know, kind of fallout from Meta and the other big generals in the, in the, in the index. But nonetheless, markets are having a fairly decent month in the month of October. Um, again, markets look to open a little bit weak this morning. Not surprising, kind of wrapping up the month. Uh, a lot of positioning here to wrap up month end. Then we get into November, of course. And, and again, we're going next week. We've got the Fed talking about rate hikes, et cetera. So, you know, everybody's being a little bit tentative here about exposure ahead of the Fed. Now, once we get past the Fed, if the Fed, you know, comes in and announces 75 basis point rate hike, that's expected. What everybody's really looking for right now is the Fed to start talking about slowing the pace of rate hikes. Now, that's not a pivot, right? That's not, that does not mean they've stopped hiking rates. You know, the markets are kind of taking this idea that the Fed's going to start to slow down their rate hikes as, as an idea they're about to pivot. That's not the case. It, you know, inevitably, the Fed has to slow down the pace of rate hikes. They can't keep hiking at 75 basis points. Um, and they, because they're aware of the lag effect like everybody else. So I can't keep hiking at 75 basis points without at least pausing at some point to wait to see, you know, how those rate hikes take effect in the economy. So just by natural laws, they're going to have to start to slow down. 50 basis points may maybe in December. And then, you know, you have another, you know, uh, 50 basis points or 25 basis points, you know, early next year. But that pace has got to slow down. And, and so that's not a pivot. A pivot is stopping rate hikes and starting to lower them. And they're not going to do that anytime soon, not at this point anyway. But what everybody's kind of looking for at this next meeting uh, this week is going to be the Fed saying, hey, you know, that's our last 75 basis point rate hike. And we're going to start to, you know, 50 basis point maybe in, in uh, you know, December, start talking about that natural taper. And that's kind of what the markets are looking for. So again, going into that meeting, um, 
won't be surprising to see markets kind of flop around here a little bit. Now, the good news is in November, a couple of things happen. We have a lot less mutual fund year ends in November. So you're going to have a lot. There, there's only a small number, like 5% of mutual funds have year ends in the month of November. That number jumps to 20% in December. And that's typically why in the first two weeks of December, you typically get a little bit of a sell-off in the markets as these mutual funds go through redemptions, capital gains distributions, those type of uh, dividend distributions, etc. for year end. And then of course, that's also when you get the year end rally as those mutual funds put positions back on their books to wrap up the year, have all their allocations in. So they only report year end reporting They've got all the right stocks and right weightings in their portfolio. So this is why you typically get that typical Santa Claus rally right after the end, uh, right after Christmas and into the end of the year. But again, so this month tends to be a little bit lighter in terms of action. So as we start to kind of go through the next couple of weeks, get past the Fed, get past midterm elections, that actually kind of opens up the markets to rally a little bit heading into the month of December. So again, more volatility coming up in the month, but typically November is a little bit better month for the markets as well. But again, watch this uh, kind of move that we're doing here. Watch this trend in the markets. We'll talk some more about this on the other side of the break. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. Don't go away. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. The end of the year is fast approaching. What will the new year bring? Join Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and Lance Roberts for our year-end economic review special event Tuesday, November 15th. How to address higher taxes in the new year. Should you delay your retirement in 2023? What will the midterm elections mean for markets? Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. And welcome back to the show. It is, of course, uh, Monday, Halloween, as we get ready to wrap things up. Everybody's very excited for tonight because it's Halloween. I guess I guess everybody's excited. I know there's a in this in the new neighborhood that I moved into, just tons of kids. So we went last night to buy candy. <laughs> take out a second loan. Yeah, actually, there's an interesting chart out this morning. The price of candy is up almost like thirty percent over last year. It's yeah, it was, it was, when we went to check out, I was like, excuse me, what? <laughs> <laughs> and there's, and there's a lot less in the bags. You know, you get oh, those, yeah. you get those kind of mixed bags with all the different mm-hmm. kind of candies in them. Shrinkflation. Yeah. So higher prices, less in the bag, which is important because on last week we saw consumer spending numbers and immediately the headlines jumped out that consumers remain resilient in the face of recession. Good old consumers hanging in there doing their job, right? Well, the problem with these consumer spending numbers, as we've discussed before, is that consumer spending is measured in dollar volume, right? How many dollars did we spend? It's not measured in how much we bought, right? Volume of purchase. We, we don't measure it that way. So you think about, think about buying candy for a second, right? So just as an example, let's say that the average amount of spending for candy bars is, you know, $10. And for $10, I can buy 10 candy bars, right? Well, 
what happens with inflation and the way that we measure. So normally we measure it and we say, okay, consumers bought $10 of candy bars. Great. So they bought 10 candy bars. We know that, right? So dollars and volume equate. And, and so we say, okay, there's no inflation at that point. But all of a sudden they start charging $15 for the same 10 candy bars, right? So consumer spending is now up because consumers are spending $15, but they're still only buying the 10 candy bars. So, you know, this is the problem. We're not creating more economic activity, right? I'm not having to produce 15 candy bars. I'm still producing the same amount of, of candy bars. I'm just charging more for them. So when we talk about consumer spending, consumers are having just to spend more money to buy the same amount of stuff. So when you take a look at numbers and it says consumer spending was up last month and that's 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 great for the economy. That means consumers are just hanging in. No, yeah, they're hanging in there. But they're not buying more stuff, creating more ac economic activity. So if there's a if there's a surge in demand, I've got to make more candy bars, right? So if consumers have more money, and this is why we have inflation right now, by the way. So at, at a point in time, as we've talked about before, and I had this conversation with my liberal cousin Dwayne in, in Utah. You know. When you when you can't produce any candy bars because we've now shut down the economy and people are wanting to buy candy bars, the ones that are available, the the supplier, the the retailer, as an example, says, "Well, I've only got ten candy bars, and I've got fifty people wanting to buy my ten candy bars. I'm going to charge ten dollars a candy bar, right? So because I've got demand for it and I can't get any more, so there's people willing to pay me. Think about an auction, right? I go to an auction." And there's, uh, there is the one Twinkie that has been around since 1950. Still fresh, by the way. <laughs> and you put it up for auction and people start bidding on it. I'll pay a dollar, two dollars, three dollars, five dollars. Some idiot pays a hundred grand for a Twinkie made in 1950, right? Well, that's the way it works in real life in, in terms of the markets when there's a lack of supply and a lot of people want what supply you have. Guess what happens to the price? It goes up. Right. That's why you have inflation. Now supply is coming back online. Right. We're slowly getting supply back. Now, we're not there yet, but we're getting there. But. The, the problem with these consumer spending numbers is that, yes, consumer spending was stronger last month than expected. But it's not because people have more money to spend. They're having to spend more money that they don't have just to maintain their standard of living. That's why consumer credit is ramping up as fast as, as it is. Very big jumps in consumer credit right now because I don't have a choice. Uh, we've had a big surge in the number of people applying for new credit cards because they've maxed out their old credit cards. They're not going out and getting new credit cards or saying, well, I don't have any debt. I think I'll go apply for a new credit card. No, that's, that's, that's not what's going on. They've maxed out their old credit card, and so they need to go apply for a new one. And if I'm worried about, and then, of course, there's also the fact in, in terms of new credit card applications, there's all these new applications that says, hey, open up your credit card right now, get 0% interest for, you know, three months or whatever if you swap your balances. So they're just rolling balances from one credit card to another, trying to avoid that 18% interest. They're not paying off their credit card. But they're opening up new credit to either get access to more of it or try to mitigate the damage of 18% interest rates on credit cards. 
So again, you've got to really look behind the numbers. That, you know, it, it's you know all these economic economic numbers. They, it's just you've got to look behind it and use a little bit of logic in these economic numbers and just not take them at face value. As you know, as we talked about last week, it's excess savings, right? You take a look across Americans; they have excess savings. Really. There's no such thing as excess savings. Having money in the bank is, I guess, excess savings because they've never had it before. But the majority of those excess savings are held by those in the top 10% of income earners. So, you know, these are these are the things to think about as, you know, you start hearing this economic data about just how resilient the consumer is. And, and there is there is no doubt that the consumer is hanging in there right now. But that doesn't mean they're resilient. They're just struggling to try to make ends meet, right? Just trying to pay bills. A uh, recent article out just recently, 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. Really? Well, if 60% of Americans live paycheck to paycheck, where are those excess savings? Right. I mean, just, you know, none of this makes sense. But this is what you hear in television, mainstream media, et cetera, trying to convince you that everything's okay. And it's not. Now, if you're listening to the show, you're probably fine because people that listen to financial talk shows because they're boring and, and you know, et cetera, is because you've got money invested in the markets. And you want to know what's going on with your money and your savings. So you're probably. Odds are, if we take a look at, you know, our demographics that listen to this show, right, the odds are you're in the top 10% of Americans, which, by the way, doesn't take a lot to get there. If you've got $2 million in savings, you're in the top 2% of the country. So, I mean, it, it doesn't take a lot to get in that upper bracket. If you're making more than about $150,000, $200,000 a year in income, you're in the top 10% of income earners, right? It's just, it, it's it's a very small number to get in that top 10% because I'm just writing an article right now. I'll have it out next week saying there is no middle class anymore. There is now the top 10% and the bottom 90. There's not a middle class. You know, middle class used to mean that you could afford a house, a car, a dog, you know, those type of things and have money left over and have savings in the bank. That was a middle class lifestyle. We don't have that anymore. To a large degree, because of what's happened in the economy, you take a look at what it takes to. And, and look, if you've got two kids, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you've got four kids, like I do, you'll really understand what I'm talking about. But raising a family of four in America is not a cheap thing. So to maintain that standard of living, right? It requires a certain amount of money to pay for school and clothes and all these type of things you got to pay for trying to raise two children in your household. It's not cheap. Mortgage, all that. The problem is, is that if you take a look at the cost of living to maintain a family of four on an inflation-adjusted basis throughout history, the top 10% today barely make enough to raise a family of four, top 10% of income earners, barely make enough to sustain a family of four without going into debt. So if the top 10% are barely maintaining a standard of living for a family of four, that would be the middle class lifestyle, by the way. 
then what about the bottom 90% who don't make enough to do that, right? And, and we run this chart all the time and we show you the spending gap, which is the gap between what it takes in terms of wages and savings to pay for the cost of living versus how much you have to go into debt every year just to fill that gap to, to, to pay the bills, right? And this is why so many Americans have so much debt. It just didn't have, I mean, you know, Americans aren't, yes, okay, let me back that up. Yes, Americans are financially irresponsible in a lot of manners, but in a lot of cases, it's not by choice. They're just trying to make ends meet. And we kind of chastise them and say, well, you should do better financially. You should do, you should do these things. You should save and invest and do all this other stuff. And it sounds great. And, you know, and, and this is another article I've got coming up is, you know, after three major bull markets, why is it that 80% of Americans don't have any money in the bank? I mean, you know, if everything worked the way that we said it works, then why are so many people broke? It is, it's just, you know, and this is, and, but this is why you have, you know, all this stuff in the media now about, you know, inequality and oppression and, you know, we need more socialism and free stuff and, you know. Racism, all, all this is a function, you know, all that is a function of this divide in the wealth that's occurring within the economy. When people, are, when people feel like they have no option to get ahead, you know, that anger starts brewing. This is why you go back through history. You know, every, every fall of every empire has revolved around exactly this type of financial situation all right be right back after the break talk about speaking of of wealth we'll talk about mark zuckerberg and why what happened with meta is why unrealized taxing unrealized gains is a stupid way to manage money be right back investment advice blog it's required reading for the informed investor catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com the end of the year is fast approaching what will the new year bring join richard rosso danny ratliff and lance roberts for our year-end economic review special event tuesday november 15th how to address higher taxes in the new year should you delay your retirement in 2023 what will the midterm elections mean for markets register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Speaking of Halloween, I was watching this uh, video yesterday and this kid's yelling at his mother basically because it's like, I don't know why you, you're worried about drug dealers lacing the candy this Halloween. They're not giving away fentanyl for free. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, yeah, you got a point. Yeah. <laughs> Too expensive. And we, you know, got to check the candy, bro. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
raising kids, that was always the thing. It's like, got to try to somehow get it away from them a little bit so they don't all wind up in a corner. I think that was a ploy, actually, it, to, to, I, to make you come home and dump all of your candy out exactly. on the floor so your parents could cherry pick it. I don't know why you're blaming other parents because you did it, too. I did it. Yeah. I was like, yeah, dump all out. Let's check it. Yeah, there's there's the Snickers those bars right orange there. orange and yellow ones, you don't like those. Yeah, yeah, those are terrible. Those, those, are bad those look for bad, you. right? Yeah. Then there's always that one neighbor that puts apples in people's bags. Like, what is this? <laughs> anyway. Kind of uh, fruit. So, you know, one of the things that has, you know, been talked about here recently, especially since the onset of the new administration, has been figuring out more ways to try to tax the wealthy. Now, fortunately, they haven't figured out how to get anything passed. But there's been lots of talk about, you know, a variety of things. Remember, they wanted to, to get rid of the, 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 the carried interest tax loophole for hedge funds. And, and that was, you know, going to be in that whole, you know, infrastructure, green energy bill that they were passing. And, and the only way it got passed was to get Kristen Sinema's vote to pass that bill. And she killed that reversal of that carried interest tax loophole in order to get the bill passed, right? So they, they weren't able to do that, which would have put a big tax on hedge funds. But it's interesting, too, because there's been lots of other conversations. One of those was we need to start taxing unrealized gains. All these rich people, right? They have all this stock in corporations. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, etc. And we've talked about this on the show before is that the way that it works for these CEOs of these big major companies that have these massive amount of, of stock options and, and, and stock, et cetera, is that what they do is instead of selling their stock and paying tax on those, on those gains in the stock, but also, too, it's also a function of protecting the stock price. If the CEO starts dumping a lot of stock, the the – theory is is that they know something is coming bad for the company so if they're selling stock then i probably need to sell mine right that's why we look at insider buys and sells all the time so if a, if a ceo is dumping a bunch of stocks that's not a good thing for the company and a lot of these companies financings debt offerings etc uh, potentially have covenants about their stock price they have to maintain their stock price at a certain level so so for a lot of these ceos they don't have the affordability of going out and just dumping stock that they own to go buy their 50 million dollar palatial mansion in florida right can't do it so what do they do is, is they they go to the bank and and you know elon musk walks into you know jp morgan and says you know hey i i need you know 50 million dollars i want to go buy this house in laguna beach you know whatever and they just say, okay, great, just pledge some of your stock and that'll be fine and we'll make you the loan. And I mean, it's a very easy transaction. So they just pledge stock to the bank in exchange for, you know, whatever money they're taking out to go buy stuff. So that's a tax-free transaction, by the way, because they borrowed money to go buy this house. So a lot of the, the media has been going, well, this isn't fair because all these rich people are going out. They're not, they're making all this money. They've got all this wealth, right? They've made billions of dollars in wealth, and they paid no taxes. To any degree, right? So if they take a salary, they're paying W-2 income tax, no matter whatever. But, you know, majority of their wealth is tax-free because they're borrowing against the shares in order to extract value. 
Now, at some point down the road, if they ever sell the shares, like Elon Musk did, then you're going to pay taxes. And, you know, he's paid more taxes in one year than any other human being in history because of selling shares. But that's not the way it works normally. So one of the, the workarounds that government has been trying to get in here is, is to start taxing unrealized gains. Because that way, you know, as Elon Musk wealth improves, so he makes a, his stock goes up and he makes $100 million more in market value, with my quote fingers up, then we charge him on $100 million of unrealized gains. So that sounds great. So Elon Musk has got to come out of pocket for, you know, $30 million, $37 million, $38 million, whatever the number is, after his standard deductions, et cetera, to pay for his capital gains, right? So this was a way to go after all these rich people to get more taxes. Well, here's the problem with it. See, it's, it's all fine and dandy when things are going up in price. It seems completely logical. But what we found out last week is the other side of that story with Mark Zuckerberg. His stock is down roughly 80% from the beginning of this year. And last week, that decline in, in the stock just added to the woes, right? So this is a very big decrease in his net worth, but it's unrealized. It's an unrealized decrease. Do you see where I'm going with this? Brent's over here nodding his head. <laughs> so if I can charge Mr. Zuckerberg for his unrealized appreciation, if I can tax him on the unrealized appreciation Mr. Zuckerberg now has an unrealized loss that he can write off on any of his gains. And it's really kind of where this, this brings up, you know, the, the problem with this whole idea of taxing unrealized gains. See, we always think about it in terms of just one thing. This guy's made so much money and he's never paid tax on these gains because he's been going to the bank and he's been borrowing the money against his shares this whole time in order to fund his lifestyle. So he's never paid income tax on this stuff. We need to go after and get these unrealized gains. Well, the, the problem comes when they lose money and they do lose money from time to time. Mark Zuckerberg is case in point this year. Elon Musk has lost a good bit of money this year in terms of valuation with Tesla shares. So now, theoretically, so remember last year, Elon Musk paid a lot of income tax on the shares he sold, and he paid capital gains tax on those shares. Now, theoretically, he would now have a deduction to go back and reclaim some of the... I mean, he would probably like this, actually, because now he would, if you were charging, allowing him to be taxed on unrealized capital gains, he could go back and claim a loss, right? Get some of those income tax dollars back. Well, now the left goes, hey, well, that's not fair. So wait, I can only 
have a tax on unrealized gains, but I can't have a tax loss on unrealized gains, uh, unrealized losses, right? So we have to, so we have to start doing all these maturations about trying to figure out how to, to navigate this. But but the, what but the point about this is, is this is always the problem with these kind of half-handed measures that politicians come up with because they never think through the process. And this is the problem with all the, uh, you know, kind of all the government spending and programs and things that we do, like student loan debt relief, right? Let's, 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 relieve, let's forgive student loan debt. Okay, well, what about the people that had already paid off the loans? Do they get a rebate? What about the people in the future? Are you going to keep writing off loans in the future? I mean, I just go out and theoretically I can go out and take a loan and then immediately get it forgiven. So, you know, what have you, what have you created here, right? So we never think about, you know, the unintended consequence of these actions. We just go out and do stuff, right? Let's send checks to households and shut down the economy. Nobody thought about what the, except we were talking about it here. We wrote articles called the sugar rush talking about this is what's going to happen. And here, here's where we are, right? But nobody ever thinks about these things. Right, we just go off this stuff kind of half cocked. It sounds really good at the time, but we never think about the consequences. Well, you know, here's a good example with Meta about the unintended consequences. If it would have passed, right? If they would have gotten this passed. Now, thankfully, they didn't. They didn't get it passed. But had they passed a bill to tax unrealized gains, would have been a problem. And then we'd have a whole bunch of other people now up in arms. But, you know, this is this is the issues, right, that we continue to deal with. We keep making these decisions based on not even half the facts, right? <laughs> Generally just no research. This sounds good. It appeals to my base, so we're going to do this, right? We need to go after all the rich people because all the poor people hate the rich people, right? The rich people over here are going, let them eat cake, and they're going, I don't like cake, and, and that's the problem. So we pass stuff or try to pass things that appeal to it. And then we then we wonder why we get these consequences down the road that everybody doesn't like. Anyway. All right. Quick break. Be right back. Wrap up the show. Don't go away. speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. The end of the year is fast approaching. What will the new year bring? Join Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and Lance Roberts for our year-end economic review special event Tuesday, November 15th. How to address higher taxes in the new year? Should you delay your retirement in 2023? What will the midterm elections mean for markets? Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com for our year-end economic review special event with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. Realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show.
So, if you live in the Houston area, it's supposed to be very nice tonight in the mid-70s. When we were in Lubbock this weekend, it was about 48 degrees <laughs> at night. <laughs> it was pretty chilly up there. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, in the Houston area, it's going to be pretty nice for uh, trick-or-treating tonight. It's supposed to get some rain very late tonight. But as you start to move up, northeast Dallas is down in the 50s, and you're going to get up into the 40s in Spook City. Spook City. Spook City, 47 degrees expected tonight. Ooh. So be a little chilly. So wear, wear some warm clothes underneath your costume if you live in Spook City. <laughs> There's some great names. of. There are, some, there are some cities in this country that have some great... You have to wonder where they came from. Especially in right? Texas. Yeah. But yeah, Cut and Shoot. Yep. That's, a, that's a good one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's some great names of cities around the country that... you know, like, who, who thought of naming the city that? And Fires the imagination. It does. Um, we talked, uh, you know, as, as Mark's getting ready to open this morning, Dow, Dow S&P are down a little bit this morning. Not surprising after that big move on Friday. Uh, not surprised to see a bit of a pullback this morning. Um, so when we think about it, you know, and, and look, and we've talked about this before, and I wanted to put some numbers with it is, is to, you know, we look at the markets on a year-to-date. We, we've all been trained, right, to look at the markets year-to-date. How am I doing this year, January 1st till now? And the problem is, is we're all matching against that high watermark which high water marks are never a good way to measure your portfolio performance because you know it, it's it's not indicative of what your portfolio has been doing over time and it also is not indicative of what you should be doing you know what your money should be doing to reach your goals right and there's some different ways to look at that that's that are better and we talked about this before, is that instead of looking at your portfolio on a year-to-date basis, look at it on a two-year rolling basis, right? So where were you two years ago versus now? Or, or look at it from January the 1st of 2020 till now, you know, whatever, right? But pick a, pick a longer-term period. Here's some numbers for you, by the way. Since the beginning of 2020, the S&P is still up 18%. So 20, 2020, 2021, and we're almost through with 2022. So, you know, if my goal is 6% a year, I'm still there, right? Six times three is 18, and S&P is up 18%. So if my goal is to reach retirement, I need 6% a year, you're still doing okay if you're invested in the S&P, right? You're still right on track, even with the pullback. So, yeah, I know this year's felt terrible, but it hasn't derailed your financial plan at all. Right, still on track. Apple's up 97%, Microsoft up 44, Google's up 38, Amazon's about flat. The sole exception, of course, is Meta, which is down 52% since 2020. Tesla's up 70, NVIDIA's up 124%. Now, when we take a look at annualized rates of return, that's what we that's how we measure our portfolio what's been our annual rate of return in our portfolio compounded annual growth rate over some period of time right i need, I need six percent a year that's my goal on a three-year cager which is the compound annual growth rate 
Apple's up 27%, Microsoft 19, Google's up 25, Amazon um, is basically about zero. Tesla is up, Meta is still up 15%, and NVIDIA is up 14%. So, you know, again, you know, when we take a look at these numbers and different measures, all of a sudden it's like this year doesn't mean that much. And yeah, the markets are down a bit. They're down less than 20% this year. Uh, you know, and it feels terrible because the markets have just gone nowhere this year, right? It's just been a, just a con consistent struggle, so emotionally draining. But this is where we start making mistakes with our portfolio management because we're so focused on the right now versus where we've been and, and where we are, right? And this is the important thing about portfolio management is not letting these short-term emotional swings in the markets drive us to make investing mistakes that impair us long-term in terms of our investment goals. And so this is, this is why it's important when you take a look at your portfolio to, and it's okay, you can, I mean, everybody measures everything, you know, year to date, right? We look at everything year to date. And the media drives us to do this. Why does the media drive us to do this? Is because it's the way Wall Street wants us done because Wall Street wants to keep money in motion. This is why in up years, they tell you, well, you know, if you're if you didn't beat the index last year, you should switch portfolio managers and find somebody who beat the index last year. Right? And so all of a sudden, you're, I'm, I'm going to chase last year's hot performer. Well, the problem with that is, and, and I just posted this, uh, this periodic table of returns out on Twitter this morning. So if you go to my Twitter feed, at Lance Roberts, you can see this periodic table of returns. But if you study that chart, what you'll see is, is that whatever was this year's best performer, which is what everybody's telling you to jump into, typically turns out to be next year's worst performer. Because things rotate and vice versa, you know. Whatever was the worst performing thing last year tends to perform a lot better this year or the next year. And they swing, you know, up and down because of that. So it's important to not get sucked into that hype. But that's what Wall Street wants you to do because every time you start jumping from one portfolio manager to another, you switch advisors, you switch your portfolio, you have to sell all your stuff to buy all new stuff, and that creates fees for Wall Street. Right. So they make more money. So Wall Street is always about keeping money in motion. And that's why we have all these short term metrics about measuring your portfolio year to date. Right. Month to date. This week, we talk about everything in really short term windows so that we lose focus on what's important, which is the long term growth of our portfolio over time. How are we doing long term? And by doing that, once you start to, to set aside all these short-term metrics and start looking at your longer-term portfolio performance, where were you three years ago versus where you are now, all of a sudden you go, oh, I'm okay. I, I don't have any stress. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't pay attention to risk and, and do those type of things and just, you know, blindly close your eyes and just, you know, not pay attention to things. There's some there's some consequences to that, but what's important is is to not make emotional decisions to say, oh, I, I'm getting all out of the market, right? I'm gonna go change my managers. I'm gonna go do this. I'm gonna do this, whatever. Because typically that gets you into a worse position over time. And generally, by the time we start making those big major changes, we're near the bottom of a market anyway. 
So you wind up hurting yourself again by paying more fees and doing those type of things. You know, one of the things is, is if you take a look at where the market is right now, money's been flowing out. So, so let's talk about next year and the year after. Commodities have been the top for the last two years. And when we were starting, we, we talked about this in late November 2020. We were talking about how energy was so hated that commodities and energy stocks were destined to outperform. And boy, have they outperformed. Been doing great. So now everybody wants to own energy and commodities. Now, what does that tell you? Right. So energy has been energy and commodities have been the top two performing asset classes over the last two years. Now, if you're a betting person, where would you put money next going into next year? Would you buy more energy? Now, your psychologist says, yeah, it's been kicking ass and it's just going to keep going up and, and there's no reason it's going to ever come down again. But history says that whatever is the best performing asset class over any given two-year period typically turns out to be the worst performing asset class over the subsequent year or two. Now, there's been times that a top performing asset class has made it three years, but I can't find any, any period where it's gone longer than that. But, so let's just get back. What's the worst performing asset class over the last two years? Nope, it's not the S&P. It's not bonds. It's emerging markets. So if you're thinking about where to place money going into the next year as a contrarian investor, what should you be looking at? Right. But where's money been flowing to? Right. So money's been flowing out of big tech and flowing into energy stocks. And that's been to a very large degree of this rotation. So that suggests that. Now, here, here's what's interesting about this, too. Energy only makes up 5.52% of the index, right? And so the money flows that go into that have an outsized proportionate effect on the overall performance of, of the market because of that increase in that market. So energy used to be 2% of the index. Now it's 5 So it's become a large, much larger weighting because of the valuation increases in these stocks. So... That's where money flow has been going to, coming out of tech, going into energy for the last two years. So there's some things to at least be thinking about. I'm not, and I'm, I'm, look, I'm not telling you that, you know, sell all your energy stocks that, that they're going to bust next year. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying there's some things to think about. Right now, everybody loves energy, hates tech and bonds. Bonds have had the worst return since 1778. So, you know, you've got, I mean, we were signing the Declaration of Independence the last time that bonds performed this poorly. Historically, that's a one-year event over the last 200 and some odd years, right? So just thinking about next year, where are you going to be placing your bets? Anyway, wraps up the show for the day. Uh, get by the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. Uh, get our latest blog post. Our newsletter is out for this weekend. So much more. It's right there for you. Realinvestmentadvice.com. Have a great day. We'll see you back here tomorrow.